Welcome to the Faith and Grief Podcast, where we explore the intersection of faith and grief. I'm your host, Shelley Craig, Program Director here at Faith and Grief. We hope the conversations and interviews you hear offer you some comfort and hope on your grief journey. Faith and Grief is a nonprofit that provides grief support programs online and partners with local organizations to offer our programs for their community. We offer monthly drop-in grief support gatherings, grief workshops, and getaway weekend retreats. Find out more about all our programs and this podcast at faithandgrief.org. On this episode, we'll be speaking with Lisa McNair. Lisa was born in 1964, one year after her older sister Denise was murdered in the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Her new book, Dear Denise, is a collection of 40 letters from Lisa addressed to the sister she never knew, but in whose shadow of sacrifice and lost youth she was raised. These letters offer an intimate look into the life of a family touched by one of the most heinous tragedies of the civil rights movement. I really loved this book because it is a memoir of life growing up in the shadow of a tragedy, but also experiencing life um, as your own person and how those two can impact And also how grief, and not only individual grief, but community grief, can affect those involved, but also those just in the periphery as well. So I'm excited to invite Lisa to our podcast today. We were very much believed in public school, and so wherever we moved, whatever that school was, was where we went. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and I'm a kid. I grew up in the 70s. I went to high school in the 80s. I went to college in the yeah. late 80s, early 90s. So we're not that yeah. far apart. Right, right, yeah, right, yeah. right. So, you know, I uh, grew up through busing and the beginning of integration and what that looked like and saw what a public school in some places looked like compared to the private schools, mm-hmm. um, resources mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. populations and all that. So yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. hearing some of that, it, it just reminded me a little bit of uh, my growing up to some degree. Um, and certainly not the same experience, but mm-hmm. I, I could relate to some of it, never quite knowing where I exactly yeah yeah yeah. Um, and then you know you think about it not knowing where I fit but then I went to two different elementary schools three different uh two different high schools and three different colleges yeah so you know that was a lot of moving around and but I think it is like a kid who's a army brat kid it gave me the ability to be able to move seamlessly seamlessly in different circles because you're so used to being a chameleon and figuring out how to fit in. Exactly. Exactly. And it's an experience that not everybody has. Right. Um, Right. So I appreciated that from my own, my own experience. So thank you for, I appreciate, that's one thing I really liked about the book is just the structure of it, how you wrote the letters to Denise and 
in that told both your own story and uh, gave a glimpse into what that experience was like, but also some history lessons and some mm-hmm. discussions about race and grief and trauma that I don't know that everybody would put all that together easily. Mm. And I think you've done it in such an accessible way. Um, I think for a lot of people, it would be a really great tool to start discussions. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah. So speaking to that, um, what made you decide, hey, I think I need to write a book? (laughs) Well, Well, originally, um, when I first decided I wanted to write the book, I was 14. Ah. And uh, I had finished um, my time at Advent Episcopal Day School, which was predominantly white private school. And it was just getting into the throes of uh, teenage years, but mm-hmm. also um, knowing that I was different from the other black kids that went to church with me or lived in my neighborhood or family members who I was related to. I was actually having an experience that none of them were having. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them had gone to integrated schools, but they weren't quite this integrated. Mm-hmm. And then somehow, I don't know whether they had more, like I know a lot of people who went to Catholic school and even though they went to Catholic school, they had more connections with black people. They, evidently they were, the population was larger, um, but it was almost like you were by yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Advent. And I knew that this was different. I knew that it was uh, weird to a lot of people. I knew that things I said were odd. I knew that ways that I behaved were odd. I knew experiences that I were, was having were very different from experiences that other Blacks were having. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, Lord, I need to write about this. And that was just at 14. I mean, I don't, I said, one day I'm going to have to write a book about this. I mean, that that was why I said to myself, not knowing that I really, really would. And then over the years, as more unique situations came about, Mm -hmm. I said, oh, I got to write that book. Ooh, got to put that down in the book. You know, it would just be (laughs) all these things. And, and, uh, but I didn't start putting pen to paper till 2006. Okay. And uh, I got the final first draft done in 2017. Wow. Are we having internet? Oh, I'm it's, so sick of the internet. I know. Well, <laughs> don't, don't believe me. Uh, in a, uh, internet connectivity, I, I want the T-shirt because, like, I feel like I feel like that's pro- kind of our problem these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wasn't the beginning of our problems, but it certainly hasn't helped. Uh, right. But, you know, that. but uh, speaking of that, uh, we started the podcast uh, right at the kind of the beginning of the pandemic, um, mainly because wow. all our programs shut down and we're like, there are people grieving. How can we help them? And this just seemed like the, you know, we're like, people are at home. Yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. hanging out. And so maybe we can uh, talk to folks like yourself. Uh, we've been fortunate enough to talk to a lot of authors and grief specialists and uh, that type of thing. So it's been really um, uh, just a delight to be able to share people's stories. So thank you again for joining us. But uh, I'm I'm so impressed as a 14 year old that you were uh, self aware enough to know what, that your experience was 
different enough to want to write about it. Um, mm. And I think like a lot of writers, uh, you know you need to be writing about it, but when do you do it? You know, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and the, exactly. trying to trying to write something and have life um, doesn't always uh, work right. work well. So, kind of, what was your writing process? Kind of once you got into it and started to really um, start writing. Well, I had a new job in '06 that uh, uh, I was an executive assistant to executive director, and I was like, oh, the only executive assistant I'd ever known had it really easy. Like the boss was in and out of the office and out of town a lot. And she had a lot of time to read books and, you know, <laughs> do her own thing along with the work. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great. I'll write it in 06 and I'll stay here a couple, three years just to make that be on my resume and it'll look good and I'll be fine. And then I'll get a huge signing bonus and, and be wealthy and write this book and <laughs> none of that happened. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, so I would just start writing. I'd go home after work at night, usually after everybody had gone to bed and I'd start writing, uh, just started typing up stuff. Um, I originally tried to write it chronologically from the beginning to mm -hmm. end and that became challenging. And as I talked to other people who written books, they were like, no, just write. We've got word now. You can move that stuff around. Microsoft Word, now you can move it around. You don't have to write in <laughs> sequential right, right. order. And uh, so I, then that that was helpful. And then I just started writing this. Sometimes I would, um, there was a civil, several civil rights tours groups that mm -hmm. come through here throughout the year. And um, I would see them and I'd often be motivated to write after I got to see one of them mm -hmm. and so there was like a lot of flow so i'd come home and i'd have mm -hmm. a lot of flow and just just really just put words on paper and then i got stuck one day and i couldn't it wasn't working for me it just wasn't working and uh i remember thinking somebody said something about a ghostwriter where you could dictate to them and they could type it up and you could get one of those you'd have to pay them but i was like you know this isn't it's going slow and so i met with a friend of mine who just got laid off in one of those newspaper big newspaper mm -hmm. layoffs they did yep. all across the country oh yeah and i was like oh she'll have plenty of time she just she unemployed now you know and um so i called her and took her to lunch and i asked her would she do it and she said no and i my feelings hurt so bad i was thinking well what else you gonna do you're unemployed but i didn't say that and uh she said well why don't you just write letters to denise because she was your sister and you didn't know her. And she would have wanted to know about your life. And you can say anything you want to to her. So that was like the key piece. I was like light bulb moment. Um, oh, of course. So from that point on, anything I wanted to say, I just started writing it down as though I was having a conversation with her. Yeah. It, I, it, it flowed. And that's what, I, that's what I meant by it's so accessible. It is like mm -hmm. reading a letter. Because oh, you've cool. you've gone in that format, and it just sounds like something that you would write to your sister, your friend, yeah. and oh. sort of tell them what's going on, sort of checking in with you know both your personal um, stories, and then also how Denise's death affected your family and those around you, and mm -hmm. for really our entire country, which is a very unusual life to have led. Um, mm -hmm. there, there aren't a lot of people in your club. Um, yeah. yeah. Small club. It's a very small club. Yeah. 
So when you were thinking about writing to Denise, what were some of the things that you wanted to write about? And by the way, um, I love the fact that you got the job as the executive assistant and thought you were going to be like doing your nails and stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> got my feelings hurt real quick. <laughs> uh, as a director in a nonprofit, um, we, we tend to remind people really quickly, the title means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> if it needs yeah, to be done, I, guess what? Here. <laughs> everybody gets to do it. Everybody yeah, gets I to told, do it. I tell people the hardest two jobs you can have is work for yourself <laughs> and work for a nonprofit. Yep. Nobody works harder <laughs> if you're doing it right in those two spaces. <laughs> it's so and, true. And it it's was. So I, I never forget that first year I worked for Hand and Paw. Uh, the executive director, she was the founder. So, <laughs> you know, she was micromanaging everything and working just like uber hard you know we would go leave it's supposed to leave at five nobody ever left till six or six thirty because we were scared <laughs> to leave before she left and we come in in the morning at 8 30 and there were 20 emails that she spent all night working and typing up you know and uh i just remember thinking oh, i'm not gonna catch up and then uh thanksgiving i never forget one thanksgiving we were still at the office at 6.30 on a Wednesday, you know, when everybody else right. gets out at noon. Yep. Not us. <laughs> yeah. Well, since you're mentioning Hand and Paw, tell us a little bit about them, and then we'll get back to the book for a second. Uh, it's provide animal-assisted therapy. Like, you would come with your dog, and uh, we would train you to go visit in hospitals and nursing homes and schools. So we have staff who do the training. We have staff who do the managing of uh, the different facilities and acquiring new facilities where we can go and vetting them and uh, training the volunteers and scheduling them at the different facilities that they best fit for. So it's a great organization and very well put together and very well run. Yeah, I love that. Um, as Animal-assisted uh, therapy is just, it's magical. Yeah. Um, it really is. Yeah. I've, I've worked yeah. in equine therapy, um, working with horses, yeah. Yeah. and it's the same. They're amazing. They yeah, We have one of those here, too, yeah. here in Birmingham. It's just, it's cool. Animals just know what to tell you, even when they, oh, I know. I know. <laughs> even though they, they can't. But <laughs> Yeah, they just are there for you. Like, my, my mom died in January, and hmm. the, every now and then, you know, I'm still having uh, crying times, and the dog will just come up to me and just paw me or lean on me. And he knows that uh, it, the sadness and the grief and he's there to support. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry about the death of your mom. Um, she plays such a vital role in your book. Um, oh, yeah. She's everywhere. Both your parents. She is everywhere. Yeah. She is everywhere. She is everywhere. So in the beginning of the book, you talk about, you know, the first letters really to the sister that you didn't know. Um, mm -hmm. you know, from what you've said, your parents struggled with infertility. It was, mm -hmm. you know, and of course, back then there wasn't really much you could do. It was just, you waited to see, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then there was your birth. And then there was sort of this expectation of, wow, Lisa showed up and now joy is all here. Yeah. 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 And that's a lot of responsibility for a little kid. Yeah, that's a lot. It still is. <laughs> it still is. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think I put it together till 
later on in life, you know, that people watched me, expected a lot from me, um, expected me to always be happy and always be joyful and uh, bringing light and love in the in the room. And I think I did it just unconsciously. You know, I didn't nobody told me, but um, you know, if I was ever sad or unhappy or angry. They were like, oh, well, that's not you. And I'm thinking, not, you know, I know better. I'm like, yeah, everybody get mad and sad sometimes, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but know, they were but born yeah. a year and four days after that sister was killed to bring joy, you know. Right, so, right. Sometimes I'm going to be pissed off. Man. <laughs> sometimes I'm not going to be happy, you know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I appreciate that you write about that in the book. Um, sort of dealing with those expectations, um, both family stuff, but also from people outside your family, because, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, people watched you, the community that you grew up in knew who you were mm-hmm. um, because of the circumstances around your sister's death. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and then folks like famous directors show up because they yeah. need to, uh, you know, tell a story and bring that story to light so that people really have an understanding of what happens. But in the, in the beginning of the book, you talk about, um, you, you talk directly to Denise and that's, I think what's really cool. Like I said, that's so accessible. Um, we talked a little bit about growing up in Birmingham and kind of your different experience. What was important to you to talk about those things as far as growing up in, uh, you know, having a different experience than a lot of your peers, I should say. Yeah, I I thought it was important to mention that in the book for context. You know, I think a lot of stuff that you talk about, if you write a book or something or tell a story, you've got to give context of the situation. Uh, Some people uh, to know what life was really like at that time. Um, I think you have to look at that. And so I wanted to give a perspective of what life was like for me, what it was was before I got here and what was Uh after I arrived on the planet and let people know what that looked like also from a perspective of an African-American because I figured many of my people who weren't here who don't know these stories be able to give them some background on, okay, this is what life was like. So, and then, and then once I gave them some background, then lead into, you know, the rest of the story. I thought that was very important to yeah. do. Um, I'm excited to share this book with teacher friends of mine, because well, I think this is the kind of book that can help introduce, especially like to me, even like middle school, high school kids to history and a, uh, easy, easy digestible way. So it doesn't feel like they're having to look in a book and memorize dates and people's names and all that stuff. When Mm people, when you learn about what the past was like by the stories of people who lived them, I think it's a much more effective tool. And yes, definitely. Most definitely. The fact that, uh, you know, the cool part to me, there's so many cool things about this. I love the fact that your dad was a photographer and he has captured so much of what you talk about in the book, in his own work, and in the work he did in uh, being in politics, but also being um, 
you know, someone that people were, you know, I hate to use the word famous mm-hmm. because uh, I think mm-hmm. famous is a weird word to use. Um, but they're a, you, your family is a part of history. And yeah. I think it's really amazing that unlike a lot of people that are in your position, except for those today, because when it hap- anything happens today, we have way too much of it. There are yeah. photographs. There's photographs of your sisters. Um, there's your family photographs, but just the historical stuff happening too. So I think that's mm-hmm. going to be a very helpful teaching tool as well. Mm-hmm. When you were writing the book, did you have any idea that that, could, that impact could happen from this book as far as helping people understand maybe your own experience, but also the historical parts? Uh, I don't know that I thought that far. I knew that I wanted them to understand mine, but I didn't realize how much it would help them understand history. Mm-hmm. Um, although, yeah, that was part of it because I, I there's so much of our history that isn't being taught. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I, I did hope that, but I, I'm grateful that that happens. That's good. Yeah. And I think that's how we, you know, I know there's a lot of discussion about how, sh- how should we be teaching history these days. But one of the things that we do here in Faith and Grief, as we're grieving, we need to tell our story. Uh, yeah, I, I did hope that, but I, I'm grateful that that happens. That's good. Yeah. And I think that's how we, you know, I know there's a lot of discussion about how, sh- how should we be teaching history these days. But one of the things that we do here in Faith and Grief, as we're grieving, we need to tell our stories. And it's really important to say our loved one's name and tell their stories. Um, Because through those stories, healing can begin. Um, You can't get healed from grief, but there can be healing in learning people's stories. And that's why I appreciate so much mm-hmm. that you, you've mm-hmm. talked about what your mm-hmm. parents went through mm-hmm. so much. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned in the book about seeing your dad grieve. And though he wasn't always demonstrative with his grief, you knew that there was something there. Mm-hmm. He would mm-hmm. take those moments and maybe stare off, or maybe he was a little distant at times. Um, as a little kid growing up, how did that how'd that make you feel? How was that um, sort of something it, it was just a part of your life, but how did you did you deal with that? It, uh, oddly <laughs> we always got it. Um, one uh, chapter uh, kind of speaking to that with your parents' grief, um, it, you speak a lot about the people around you in the neighborhood, um, people at church, and just the immense support they received um, after Denise's death, but really throughout your life, um, it just felt like people were there supporting them all the time. Was that something you you felt as a kid, as a young adult even? You know, I don't know that I thought enough about it to feel it as a kid, but I definitely felt it as an adult. I definitely felt that and and feel it now just really strong. You know, yeah. people, you know, everybody knows our story. So mm-hmm. everybody knows who we are. So 
I mean, we've just been given a lot of grace, um, mm. very, very a lot of kindness from black people and white people in this city. Yeah. Um, everybody's just been so kind and respectful. Like Tuesday, I was honored by City Hall, the mayor and my counselor uh, at City Council meeting here in Birmingham. Cool. And the mayor is like a young guy and he's really kind and he's very sweet. And um, he always has really wonderful, sweet things to say. And he's just, you know, he the fact that he knows who I am because he's a young guy, you know, young people, <laughs> you know, I, I'm old compared to him. But, uh, you know, he knows and he knows our story and he's respectful of it and he honors it. And uh, that's that's just like so, so important. I, I find that to be just great and that that he would do that and then and then like to be able to need something or be able to um make a call or mm -hmm. if you have a question you know we, we got we can get access you know you pick up the phone and it's like hi this is lisa mcnair and oh lisa mcnair miss mcnair you know you get that and uh oh how can we help you and and that kind of stuff so that's that's always been really sweet. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I've enjoyed that. Yeah. Well, and, and it's a, it's a great thing. It's just a lot of love. I know I get people to ask me, um, you still live in Birmingham when I travel, you still live there. Is that where you are? And I was like, yeah. And they were like, wow, why? You know, I'm like, well, Birmingham is home. So, um, I know there's a lot of reasons I could have left. I could have left a lot of times, but, you know, I'm still here. I, I spoke to a church group today and the people were just so wonderful and fantastic and loving, you know, I, I've thought of moving, still think about moving, but home is where you can get that. And you don't even have to ask for it. It's just going <laughs> to come, you know, it's exactly. You don't have to, don't have to do that. But I, I yeah. just from the book, it seems like the community, especially in near the church, the church, the church community that you grew up in, became mm -hmm. so tight knit after the bombings um, that it it was just. I, I, I of course I don't have anything to describe it other than from what you did in the book. That's why I was asking about. Um, how people came to support your family afterwards and even to today, which to me speaks both of the volume of the tragedy, but also um, the resilience in a community. Mm -hmm. I think also it has to do a lot with uh, proximity. Mm. Uh, my dad um and 73 became the first African-American legislator from Jefferson County. So that put him on a platform where he had access to so many people, mm -hmm. black people and white people. And if you're running for office, you're shaking hands and meeting people in Walmart and Sam's and talking <laughs> to them in the grocery store, you know. Um, and so that that gave people access to you. They feel like they know you. They feel like they're, you know, your best friend. Um and so he was everywhere. And then my mom was a public school teacher, so she knew a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But even before Denise uh, was killed, 
Daddy was the milkman when people would get their milk because somebody would drive around. You had to explain that because people don't know the milkman. Yeah, they don't understand the milkman. <laughs> no, they don't understand the milkman. You know, people, for some reason, I don't know that you could get milk in the store, but people would drive around and mm-hmm. deliver milk to your house. And so he was a milkman in the neighborhood. And there are still people today. He has been dead since 2019. And they said, oh, your daddy was my milkman. They know <laughs> and fell in love with him from the milkman days. So then my mom, she was a very well-known part of Birmingham society, although she would never look at it like that. But uh, her dad owned, uh, her mom was a teacher Mm -hmm. and her dad owned a a dry cleaning store called Social Cleaners. And so she knew everybody else because they came and got their clothes done at her her dad's store. So, you know, I met mama said her wedding to daddy was one of the biggest weddings that they'd ever had here in Birmingham uh, of that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm sure when the bombing happened, people who already knew them and loved them were just devastated with them and here to lift and support them. But also... People that didn't know them got to know them and empathize with them. I mean, I still get people, if I walk up to somebody and somebody introduces me as Lisa McNair, sister of the, one of the girls who was killed in the bombing, people literally start crying. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't just get red in the face and feel sad. I mean, I've had people just lose it. And then I got to figure out how to talk them off the ledge because they're like, God. And, uh, you know, I think it's just a thing. It's like, it's kind of like Sandy Hook for me. Mm-hmm. I just can't hear anything about that and listen to anything about that without my heart just being broken that somebody would kill little kids. It's just horrible. It's just something you can't even possibly grasp your head around. And uh, so I'm assuming that it's that kind of grief and empathy that mm-hmm. people feel about that. Yeah. Because things like these tragedies, and unfortunately they haven't really ever ended. There's just yeah. been space in between them. That's correct. Um, I think it's, I think we get emotional because it's so visceral. Yeah. Yeah. That it's, exactly. it's the thing that we can't imagine but fear at the same time mm-hmm. but i think it in the case of both situations it makes us look back at ourselves mm-hmm. and what we've allowed to happen um, as a society and what we want to sometimes pretend doesn't exist mm-hmm. that's true and the only way uh the truth gets in the light is when we bring it out into the light. There's, we can't pretend it just doesn't exist. It's like, I think my, and I spoke about it earlier, my my own personal experience was I grew up in public schools and because of that, I had friends from every faith tradition, every uh, racial and ethnicity background, my junior high was predominantly African-American. Um, and so I grew up where that was there. And we talk, it, it's sad because we talked about racism. Mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. we were very vocal about it back then. 
Like we, we understood that that was something that was wrong, that mm-hmm. things were getting better, but they weren't finished. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's just been this sort of period of time where we've just sort of stopped talking about it. Yeah, that's true. And then everyone's shocked again when it raises its ugly head. I'm like, it didn't go, yeah. any, it didn't go anywhere. No, it just, didn't. It just got quiet for a while. That's um, it. Because, so you know, if you talked about things like that, oh, you might be called a racist or you might be called something else. So I'm looking at the chapter right now, um, chapter 10 on Thinking White, and it's talking about these things uh, a lot about kind of who was on television at the time and, and uh, role models for you as a young person. But I loved the fact that you quoted your mom, your mama here, and says, mm-hmm. we have to love all the people like Christ loves us. Everyone has a duty to love, and we must take each person individually and love them for who they are. Yep, that was mama. And uh, I love that. I, yeah. I'm going to write it and put it in my office <laughs> because I, I think it's the part at the end that gets me the most and love them for who they are, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is really hard. You want to love people yeah. for who you want them to be sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, and, you know, that I think sometimes gets everything. Um, but I love the fact that you said that made sense to me as a child particularly because it was confusing to me to be in a white school every day with white students, teachers, and friends, along with all the other white friends we had in our life. If I had to hate them, I knew I was going to be difficult and would require time and energy I didn't have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is such a powerful statement. Mm -hmm. I knew it was going to be difficult and require time and energy that I didn't have. Yeah. When I read that, I've got, I've got goosebumps just now. I I got it when I read it the first time. Wow. It takes so much energy to hate somebody. It does. It does. And that would have cost, that. I would have had to course correct everything I had to do every day. That by this time, I'd been going to that school for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And if I was supposed to hate white people, then I was going to have to hate the teacher and all of my classmates. And, you know, that that's just, um, I, it wasn't going to work. It just, just wasn't going to work. It just wasn't going to work. Right. And, like, when I read that, it gave me good sense because I think of how much energy people do spend hating other people. Yeah, yeah. It's ridiculous. And I know that they they want to hate sort of the overarching, you know, whether it's hating white people or hating whatever race you want to say. or mm-hmm. But when you know someone individually, it's okay. I've always struggled with that um, thing. Like, I'm like, you can't blanket statement a whole group of people. Right. And then say, oh, but that, that, that person's okay. Yeah, and that's like kind of like uh, what Brian Stevens says, proximity. If we're close to each other and get to know each other, yeah. you know, that makes it very difficult to hate somebody. Because how can you hate them and you're around them all day? Or you're around, you know, right. in their personal spaces. That makes that very difficult. It, well, it really does. And we've done, you know, 
after uh, integration and uh, busing, which, you know, had its successes, but also didn't, um, mm-hmm. you know, we're probably more separate now, I think, than we were even then. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I certainly see it here um, in, you know, even my kids' own schools, uh, schools that I've worked in here in different parts of the Dallas area. Um, mm-hmm. We've segregated ourselves over the last yeah. couple decades. Um, yeah, we have. We really have. And no one's, no one's, again, it was a silent, you know, it was a silent mm-hmm. segregation. Mm-hmm. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, oh, we're driving, you know, and, and for those who aren't aware, there used to be actual red line districts that they would mark on a map of where mm-hmm. people could live, particularly black people, mm-hmm. um, and where they couldn't live um, in by zoning laws and all kinds of other made up things. Um, but we've kind of done it to ourselves. And yeah, I always think the pain and grief that we've experienced because of that separation. Yeah. We're just now, I don't, I don't know. I worry that we can't heal that unless we're in proximity of one another. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you have to see one another. And see, right. yeah, and and not only see one another, but see each other's soul. Yes, yes. Because that is very true. That's that's the thing, you know. You can see somebody from the outside and make your judgment. We all do. It is human nature. That's part of it. But our souls are a whole nother world that we don't. Some most of the time, just don't take the time to get to know. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's where your chapter talking about um, we're more alike yeah, than we are different. We may have different experiences, different cultures, yeah. but we're still human. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We're still children of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then we, and we go through so many similar experiences, um, you know, you know, short of our color, we I've had so many people die in my life now mm-hmm. at 58. White friends, parents, black friends, parents. And, you know, the grief is the same. Mm-hmm. The grief is palpable. Mm-hmm. Um, you just, you hate that that person lost their relative and your heart grieves for them. And I've been to white people's houses when I was hanging, you know, sitting there, you know, talking about their relative i've been to their funerals and their wakes and their mm-hmm. you know family hours and uh you know it's 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 all the same you know everybody is lost a person they're sitting in a casket and they're never gonna see them again and they, and they're and they're hurting they're hurting that that hurt does not have a color Mm-mm. does not have a race and the, and the crazy thing about it is we're all going to go through that. Yeah. We're all going to have weddings and babies being born and then funerals and parents dying. And um, it's all the same. It's mm-hmm. all the same. We, we make it be something else. And it, we're, that's just crazy. I have a white friend. Um, 
It was a very unlikely white friend. She's a very, from the first thing she ever told me was, I'm conservative and I always will conservative. So I was like, really, is that like the first thing you're going to bring up? Anyway, um, she, she just um, wanted you to know. <laughs> yeah, this is where we going. And uh, so she, she's been my friend for seven years. We're dog people. And uh, it, it, it's, it's, I'm always the one she calls when there's a crisis. Mm. I'm uh, she's white and I'm black, and there's always I'm always the one that calls when she's having trauma in her life, when there's crisis in her life. And a little over a year ago, her husband died, mm. and he was the sweetest guy. He was just wonderful, but he kind of got sick real fast and just went out real fast. And she's just devastated because they've been married over thirty years, and um, but like people do. People get tired of you talking about the death after a while, you know, your loss of your loved one. You you still living with it, but actually people get tired of hearing it sometimes. And um, but I kept up with her. I took her to a grief support uh, event shortly thereafter. I sent her stuff in the mail. I called her and the other day, a couple of weeks ago, I was at her house and she said, you are the only friend that still checks up on me. And sees that um, I'm okay, and lo- lis- listens to me talk about him. Nobody else wants to talk about him, mm. and I think first of all, I think that's very sad that it nobody is. wants to yes. like support her, right? Um, but I'm a black person. Ooh, we have very you know little comment, comment politically, and in a lot of things we have a lot in Berlin, but you know. But I'm the girl she calls when she's in a crisis. Mm-hmm. And I just happen to be black. But would she do that had we not met and formed this friendship, you know? Would she be, you know, from where she comes from? And, you know, who, would she have anybody else? Should she choose not to have black people as friends? But I'm that person that is there for her. I, ha- I keep her dogs when she goes out of town. Yeah. I have her dogs when she goes out of town. Nobody else will do it. Exactly. <laughs> That's why she, she loves you, Lisa. She's like, if, yeah. you lo- if you love me and you love my dogs, of course yeah. I'm going to help you. And, uh, and I think God has given me a gift of challenging people. She's not always warm and fuzzy. Mm. And I get that. But I know that she is deep down. But I think she's just not warm and fuzzy on the outside because it's a wall that she's putting up right. so that she won't be heard. Right. But uh, she's very caring and she's been very helpful to me and very kind to me. But, uh, and I, I just look at our friendship and think, you know, it's a very unlikely friendship, but we're, what, and then on the other hand, it's a likely friendship because we're human beings. Right. It just is. Yeah, it just yeah. is. And, you know, I don't want everybody to think this is like some kumbaya about um, if we all just, you know, (laughs) sat around and had a Coke together, we'd be all right. But um, But really, at the end of the day, yeah, we would. I mean, if you just look at somebody as an individual and stop all the other crazy stuff in between. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you would. You would. Because we're just more like than we are different, you know. You know, we, we. We, that's, that's a Shakespeare, I think it's a uh, 
play or something that said, if you cut me, do I not bleed? Yes. You know, I was never good in English literature, so I don't know what the rest of that line is. But it says some more things similar to that. that that's just at the end of the day makes you realize we're just human. I mean, you know, she she cuts her grass. She has to have her grass cut to keep her yard up. I have to cut my yard, keep my grass cut. <laughs> I have to pay property taxes at the end of the year. You Thank know. you. Yeah. She and I talk about all kind of just regular life stuff. You know, right. now she, her husband died and she moved her parents in with her. Mm. And so now she's become parent caregiver. And I just finished that for yeah. years. And so now I, to a lot of my friends, because my parents were older because they had us after, later after Denise died. You know, I'm the, I'm the, advice person on how to care for you know older people and yeah. so i'm sharing with her things that she should do things that she should not do things she should be aware of so that she won't hit the walls i hit that you know and um, it's so just human it's that's just human. human exactly it's when we human. have these human experiences the death of a loved one for instance mm -hmm. uh you know our philosophy at faith and grief is that we need to grieve Grief needs to be witnessed. Yeah. And we also need to support each other, be able to grieve in community with one another. Mm -hmm. um, because it's really hard to do by yourself. It is. It just, it is. it's difficult. And it's so difficult whenever we're, we're challenged to try. We, we've been sold a story that, and I think it's not just an American story, but I think it, it's very much American that we're supposed to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and yeah. take care of it and not not show any weakness and uh, just get on with it, which yeah. uh, so far hasn't worked. So, no. <laughs> <laughs> so slowly in the last, you know, really honest last, to me, like the last few decades, uh, especially in the last decade, and I think social media has helped with this because we were talking about mental health more than ever. We're talking mm -hmm. about, we're talking about grief and these experiences. No, I don't say social media has cured anything. It hasn't. No, no. <laughs> um, but it, it has helped with some things. Um, but you talk about that in the book, your own struggles um, early as a young adult, um, dealing with the pressures of, of just being a young adult, um, going to school, having fun, and then kind of hitting a, a bump in the road, a failure that you had to deal with. Mm -hmm. I am so glad you talked about that in the book because I think a lot of people without that knowledge would just say, this was a really nice memoir and I'm glad I got a slight history lesson. This was really cool. And it's interesting that we're talking about race and uh, tragedies and things, but you got real personal um, about your own struggles Tell me a little bit about that and kind of what the process was in recognizing what was going on with you. Well, I it basically started when I went to Alabama and uh, it really pretty much started a long time ago. Um, it was just hard growing up the way I grew up, not knowing where I fit in. Mm. So there was this constant struggle to try to figure it out, you know, um, having been 
in white culture and around white people so much, you know, you know that that, that was a culture that was more comfortable for me. However, that was not, you know, I at the end of the day, I'm not stupid. I'm wise enough to, I'm smart enough to know I'm not going to get to be white. That's not going to happen. Um, But that's the people I fit closely more aligned to at that time. And, um, but that was not well received. I mean, like, what could you do that, you know? And my mind was like, there's other places in this country that you could do that with. Um, but I didn't live in any of those places. I lived in the deep south where, mm-hmm. you know, that that wasn't an option. So being that different, but not having an outlet for it was very, uh, you know, challenging. Mm-hmm. And like, what do you do with it? And, and I guess if I'd been even smarter, I would have worked really hard to move somewhere else um like move to the west coast or to the north where the mixing of the races were more uh, appreciated and more the norm but i didn't and i stayed here and so it was just challenging because on the one hand you have the okay i don't fit in with my own people so that's bad enough that mm. i'm with black people and then I wasn't fully accepted by white people. So, like, what do you do? You got to get up in the morning. You got to go to school. You got to go to work. You know, huh? how do you how do you deal with that? Um, so you just get up in the morning. You go to work. You know, um, I, my, my affinity for wanting to date a white guy, you know, one that I didn't want to date black guys. But at the time, the white guys had more in common with me. We could relate to better. So. But it was taboo. <laughs> that just was, that was like, the only people I knew who was black and dated a white guy was uh, Peril Bailey, one TV actor, Dorothy Dandridge. Yeah. And uh, a couple other people who lived in a whole nother world, other than Birmingham, Alabama. And um, that just wasn't an option. But you're a girl and you're a teenage girl like right. anybody else. You want to date, you want to go out, you know. And you, and, like, uh, and you like who you like. You know, right. like you, you, like get a, you, like. you get you get know, a crush on who you get a crush on. I mean, it's not you get like, a crush on yeah. who you get a crush on. I mean, you know. and again, it's yeah. proximity. If you're around a certain group of guys, you're gonna like right. one of them. Right. You know, uh, yeah. Uh, I know that that was a that was a change for me personally. I grew up um, in the Northeast um, primarily and went to school in Mississippi for college, mm. and. My friend, oh yeah, it was it was a little bit of culture shock. They didn't know what to do with me. They were like, "Who? Where are you from?" Um, uh, But it was funny because my my friends in Pennsylvania would say, "Is it just so like awful there?" And I go, "No, it's a really nice place. You know, people are nice and and all this." But I did quickly cue into uh, that, you know. I always give the example in the daytime, the white kids hung out at the commons area and in the evenings, the black kids did. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. very, every once in a while on certain occasions, we would mix with each other, but it yeah. was still yeah. kind of separate. Um, yeah. But I worked, I was a radio, television and film major. And so a lot of my friends were black and, and we all knew each other. And so we would, hang out 
(laughs) (laughs) And, you know, for some people, they didn't like that. Yeah. And what's interesting about that whole thing is, like you said, for some people, they didn't like that. But for, you know, decades and centuries, Uh that just hanging out. Not dating or doing no. anything, but just hanging out. Oh, yeah. Was an extreme taboo. You know, it was oh. just like, you know, and I, I and it was hard for me, and I just didn't get it. I would like be with some of my white friends, and I, I was having a party, and I would invite my white friends and my black friends to mix together, uh-huh. you know, and, and my black friends would come up and be like, oh, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I even had uh, one of my birthdays, like, Maybe three or four years ago, I had a pool party at uh, the condo I lived in, and one of my black friends came, and I had invited some of my white friends because you come to my party, you gonna see the rainbow. And uh, uh, she's like, "Oh, I forgot you know a whole lot of white people." When she walked in the door, and saw, you know, a lot of white. Like, yes, that is how this rolls. <laughs> if you uh, you want to deal with it, you, you want to be a part of it. Just has roll. If not, then you don't need to come. Then you don't need that's to come. How that's roll. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah, and and I'm comfortable with that. But it, you know, back in the 70s, 80s, you know, mm-hmm. that I was not comfortable with that in a space because the people around me were not comfortable. Right. In oh. those spaces. And uh, and it wasn't. But that was who I was. That was who I am. That was exactly. That was at the core of me. I wasn't gonna. I didn't know how to not. You know, and I had all, all these thoughts about, well, well, I guess I won't be friends with white people anymore. Or, and then that never worked because inevitably the next day or the next week or the next minute, somebody white who was my friend would come around and I'd be like, no, I can't not be her friend anymore just because she's white, you know. And then I'd be like, well, I'll just stop hanging with black people. And then, you know, uh, my best friend in the world is a black person. And I was thinking, well, that's not going to work either. So it was just, it, it was all these cultural things. It just didn't make sense. There right. it, it, it was, it was no rationale to any of it. But it left me out in the cold and mm-hmm. looking like the odd man out. And uh, that was always very hurtful and painful. Oh, yeah. And then in the midst of that, trying to find out where I fit in like that, but then also... Um, uh, you know, not doing my homework because I'm trying to figure out how to fit in, and then I get kicked out of school because I'm, you know, trying to find myself, right? And but not doing my homework, and it was just, it was devastating because I went from the child that got all A's and A's and mm-hmm. B's, to child that you know can get get her grades together and got kicked out of Alabama uh, academic suspension. Probably the only person that ever got kicked out of academic suspension not for drinking and partying, but just trying to make a life. Doing your thing. I know. Well, you know. You know, and my parents didn't understand. And another reason for writing this book, my parents didn't understand it. You know, their thing was like, get your homework and do your your work. Mm -hmm. They didn't understand that I can't get my homework and do my work right now because I don't know where I fit in. And when I leave the classroom, that's a, that's going to come up. Yeah. I need to find that place. And it just took me years to find that place. And uh, it was important to me. And um, no, no shade on them because they didn't get it. You know, sometimes parents don't get it. No. But it was. 
Well, and I needed I needed a common ground. I needed somebody to hear me, and I needed somebody to feel me on that. And there just was no one. And, and I think I'm I'm hopeful that today, whether it's through social media or other organizations, that kids do have some more space to talk about these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there's there's certainly. Um, like yeah, I, the world is very different today. Yeah, I mean, the world, the world is very different. Talk about all types of differences that they're going right, through and right. experience, and so it's it's a great, 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 great thing. Yeah. But I, I'm I'm glad that I wrote the book for you know African American kids who might mm-hmm. not be going. You know, I think there's some black kids that that thought about doing what I was thinking about doing, and that was. You know, denying your blackness and just fitting into the white bubble where you fit in, um, which was a very strong consideration that I had for a very long time, mm-hmm. um, which is embarrassing as an African-American to say that you want to denounce your blackness, which is foolish because you look in the mirror, you're going to still be black. But it was it, it had gotten to a point where it was so difficult that. I, I at least the white people were kind to me at one point and I could I had a comfortable space that I didn't call, get called white girl and people didn't laugh at everything I said or and I, I mean literally my mom in the teenage years my mom you know she would bring me to parties with her friends kids and mm-hmm. you know I'd have to socially interact with them and I just wanted to die rather than do that I mean it was just the most horrible experience I just could not stand it. And um, if I didn't have my friend Wendy to teach me <laughs> some black slang, you know, or dances like a few hours before the party, I wouldn't have made it. I wouldn't have made it. And, and it sounds weird to say, I mean, you can't just go hang with your people. But it, I wasn't, I had spent so much time with the uh, dominant culture. And, and what I didn't, what I also wrote that book about, and I don't even say that in the, this in the book. But there are some people out there who have, they got hurt like that, and they were like, okay, bye, boo. And they don't have anything to do with their blackness, or they hate their blackness, or they've embraced the hate of their blackness that their white people, white friends have. And they have gone, like, I look at people like Clarence Thomas, I, you know, he gets on my last nerves. Like, he just like anything black, he just hates. And like, dude, do you look in the mirror? Who you see? Anyway. Um, I wrote the book for those. There's some people out there who might be saying, I'm done. Don't be done. Don't be done. Just, I, don't be done. I think find that's... your place in the middle and just embrace it. And and, and, and if people like it, because that's what freed me. I'm going to be white girl sometime. I'm going to be black girl sometime, but I'm always Lisa. Yeah. And you got to learn to love me 100%. And if you don't, that's your problem. It's not my problem. Right. Because I love me. Yeah. Well, and and I think that's just it. it. That's why I said there's so many things in this book I could relate to, um, especially you having to be a chameleon all, often. Because yeah. I, I know I've I've definitely know how to do that. Uh, um, but, yeah, you, you have to decide who you're going to be at any given time. But at some point, yeah. we get to a certain age. Uh, Because you're you're a little little bit older than me, but not much, um, (laughs) where we just kind of go, 
this is me. Take this it or leave me. it. It's yeah, going to be okay. And yeah. just see me as a person. Right. You know, right. and for the care and love that I'm going to show you, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. let, let's not get wrapped up in all of it. Yes. Yeah. It, it's easy to say those things. Um, yes. yes. Um, but we have to start saying them. That's the thing. <laughs> like, right. You, right. You know, right. Right. Tiptoeing around everything hasn't helped either. No. You know, no. it's it's like tiptoeing around when someone's grieving. Yeah. A lot of times people don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. And rather than tell me how you're feeling today, they just don't talk. They don't talk about the person who's died. They, they just sort of like move on and pretend like nothing happened. Yeah. And, and like my friend um, whose husband died, she wants to talk about him. Right. And people don't want to talk, but she wants to talk. So when I'm with her, I let her talk about it. Yeah. We talk about all the little crazy, silly things he used to say <laughs> and how funny he was and just the crazy stuff he would do. And um, But that's important. I mean, he died, but his, his spirit is still here. And he, right. we need. if she needs to share about that, she needs to be allowed to share about that because this is a person she was married to for 30 some odd years and he has gone and she is left here. Yeah. That, that's a lot. It is a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Lisa, it's been delightful talking to you. I'm so glad uh, we were able to get this. I didn't get to, uh, you know, hanging out with Spike Lee and everything from your book. <laughs> <laughs> um, for those who don't know, Spike Lee did a amazing documentary called Four Little Girls um, for HBO several years ago. Um, Denise uh, is, of course, one of the four who died. But your family is very much a part of of the documentary. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, I, w- I encourage people to go watch that. Um, Thank you. It's something that we've done sort of on the anniversary of that. Because to me, it's something that we need to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we need to know the stories of how our loved one died um, so that we can deal with the feelings that we have around it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. even something as, uh, you know, historical as this, and it's hor- horrible to, to say that, um, it's important and not just for the black community. It's really important for all of us to know the story of these four little girls and they will learn so much about you and Denise through this book and your family. Um, Congratulations on uh, sticking with it and writing it. Um, I'm excited to share it with our community. Uh, We uh, have a book club that we highlight books each month and this will be uh for next month um and uh we'll probably release this episode uh of the podcast in the next couple weeks i'll send you links and all that stuff once it's edited and all that good stuff um but thank you so much lisa it's been well thank you for having me i hope your book club enjoys uh reading it i'd love to hear their their comments yeah we'll definitely do that well um Thanks again, and uh, blessings to you and your family. Thanks. Same to you. I appreciate it. We hope this episode of the podcast offered you some comfort and hope 
Would you like to support us? Go to faithandgrief.org give and offer a donation for our next episode and become a podcast producer. Thanks for joining us here on the Faith and Grief podcast. We make this possible. Thanks for joining us here on the Faith and Grief podcast. Your support makes this service available to all who are grieving. If you'd like to support the Faith and Grief podcast, go to faithandgrief.org give and offer a donation for our next episode.